This is Season 1, Episode 11 of Dog-Eared Nightmares. I am still L.P. Hernandez. It's been a while, hasn't it? How are you? How's that thing? On this episode, I am joined by Alexander James. We talk about his debut novel, The Woodkin. We linger in the discomfort of offering comps. We talk about productivity, how Twitter used to be good for something, such as finding an agent, and how to make the perfect scrambled eggs. Alexander James is a new-to-me author whose debut novel, The Woodkin, was released earlier this summer. He is also a chef hailing from the Pacific Northwest. The setting for this wilderness survival horror story centered around Josh Mallory, a man whose dueling trauma threads begin to unravel as his get-away-from-it-all trek along the Pacific Coast Trail attracts unexpected guests, the Woodkin. It's a fun read with delicious writerly morsels perfect for a night under the stars. Um, so, Alex, thank you for joining me on Dog-Eared Nightmares. Thank you so much for having me. Very excited. And if you want to hear a more professional version of this podcast, you can listen to Alexander's episode on Talking Scared, which was about <laughs> a month and a half, two months ago. Um, so I did try to do some research on you, but um, The Woodkin is your debut novel. And outside of a few short stories you have on your website, that seems to be the whole of your contribution to the horror genre for now. Um, can you talk about your relationship to horror? Did you grow up loving it or did you find your way to it later in life? I found my relationship with horror for the first time when I was starting to read seriously as a, as a young adult. I was in middle school, I think, when I first started like pounding my way through books. And um, I feel like my class was was doing something. I think there was a project where, anyway, I ended up going to my dad and saying like, hey, I want to read a scary story. And he gave me, I think, one of the classic like middle grade anthologies, you know, the the vibe with like Baba Yaga or the girl with the green scarf around her neck. Um, and I read them and I was like, yeah, those were fine. But like, I want to sing. I want I want like a scary story. And this psychopath handed a 12 year old child it by Stephen King. Um, and that was the first like truly, first of all, truly scary story I ever read. And then also like, I think the book is like 1300 pages. Like there's no way a 12 year old can fully understand and, and get through what Stephen King is trying to say in that book. But I read at least enough of it to get the story and be sufficiently scared. And that was the first experience I had with horror as a book and as a story. And then from there, you know, horror movies and shorts and, and sort of the sprawling multiverse that horror is today. I think I was around the same age and I also had the unabridged version, which was around 1300 pages. And I, if I remember correctly, it took me about six months. Yeah. It took me a long time to read that book. As great as it is though, it's kind of, you know, for future writers, an, uh, an awful way to start because there is so much in there that was just unnecessary. The thing is, is I find that really excellent writers can make even even the fluff really good. It's it's enjoyable to read. And then it's only later where you're like actually getting to the meat of what the story is where you're like, oh, we didn't really need that 60 pages where we followed this one kid home and learned about his weird Uncle Sal. But damn, it was still pretty entertaining. And the like the layout of the city, like under I don't know. There there were some yeah. pretty 
I might have skimmed over those. Um, so you mentioned movies. Were there some formative movies for you as well? Yeah, I went to uh, a couple of sleepovers. Sleepovers were really like uh, horror university for me as a kid because a lot of my little idiot friends were also into scary movies. And so we watched The Strangers uh, in the mid 2000s, which might still be one of the scariest movies I've ever seen. That is my favorite horror movie is it really? of all time. Yes, it is. Honest to God, terrifying every time. I've seen that movie five plus times and and at least three jump scares per watching. Something I realized, I think I've enjoyed it for the scares kind of initially the first probably half dozen times I watched it. I realized on more recent watches that the the bad guys or whatever you want to call them, the strangers, uh, I guess that's what you would call them, the strangers. Sure. Um, they didn't actually, they were not violent like well into like over halfway through the movie. I think mm -hmm. uh, all of the injuries were kind of self-inflicted, not that they weren't um, responsible for it. They were trying to get in the house, but as far as like direct violence, it was pretty far into the movie before they engaged in direct violence. A lot of it was, um, you know, the two characters at home, it was their response to, you know, their fear. Mm -hmm. So interesting, but yeah, I, that's uh, one I can't wait till my kids are old enough to watch. I think just the scene of the, the, I think it's Liv Tyler in the kitchen with the person in the background just standing there. The background still shots are geniusly crafted as far as I'm concerned, because it's not, it's, it's almost like a, like sleight of hand. Like it's, it's the hand you're not looking at. And one of the things that gets me about this movie, just from like a conceptual point of view is so many scary movies. You're like, look at this Satan spawn child, or look at this demon, or look at this, uh, you know, Lovecraftian monster from the depths of the ocean and the strangers is just like look at these horrible people mm -hmm. like it's not no part of it is fantastical and then well I guess I'm not going to spoil a, an 18 year old movie at this point but <laughs> her the reasoning behind it and I think that's oh you know God. towards the end you know that that's kind of a, a line that stuck with me like why are you doing this because you were home so it could have been yeah. anybody so really like a capstone, a capstone on that movie is that last line is just mm -hmm. so it's so chilling. Um, that's cool. And we had that, uh, both read it around the same time and both mm -hmm. have that mm -hmm. relationship to the strangers. We did not plan that out. Um, so writing <laughs> horror, uh, I mentioned in the introduction, you're a chef. Yep. Uh, I was expecting more tattoos. I'll be honest. Isn't that a chef thing? It is a chef thing. I'm, I'm woefully lacking in the, in the tattoo department, but I make up for it in witticisms and sass. So. Okay. That's a chef thing too. So that is an interesting pairing. Uh, I can't say I've ever encountered a writer slash chef, although I guess Anthony Bourdain had the, the famous book. Yeah. Um, he's kind of got the chokehold on it. I'm trying to, I'm trying to break into the margins there, but. <laughs> so does one call to you more than the other and follow on to that? Do you remember the first story you ever wrote? Mm, great question. I think it, comes and goes. Um, everything in life is a balance. And I for sure have months where I am much more creatively satisfied by food um, and crafting menus. I'm, I'm an executive chef. So my creativity is much less the minutia of cooking on the line and 
searing one duck breast, you know, my, my creative outlet with when it comes to food these days is writing entire menus that span multiple weeks and uh, changing my restaurant seasonally and teaching my, my crew and growing them and, and, um, honing their skills so that they can move on to become sous chefs at, at other restaurants and what have you. So there are months where definitely I am more called to the food. And then there are months where I'm, I'm more called to the words. And for a brief glorious stint a while back, I was writing a book about kitchens where it was sort of like one hand washing the other, which was a really satisfying creative burst that yielded, uh, it's funny because it was so satisfying to write, but the book wasn't as happy as I was during the, during the time, like the book ended up being, um, kind of a, kind of a grimmer look at like what it actually takes to thrive in those really high pressure kitchens, which is, you know, ultimately, a um, kind of a busted brain. But yeah, so it comes and goes is the is the answer. One, sometimes I'll I'll be called more towards the food, and then other times the the words. Um, so I get I asked about the first story you ever wrote, but I, I would also like to ask since you're a chef, do you remember like the first meal you were ever proud of? So both questions: What's the first okay. story that you can remember writing, and then the first meal that you were proud of? The first story I remember writing was for a Lego set that I had gotten uh, as a, as a Christmas present. It was mm, early two thousands, I want to say. And it was this sort of like uh, building and car and character combo. I can't quite remember the, the specific IPs of them, but I spent a long rainy afternoon building this building and car and character. And then I had like a little Lego collection. And then I, I put together this sort of like tableau of, of characters and buildings and, and um, spent an afternoon like coming up with elaborate storylines. And then I made, I grabbed my mom and brother who I think were in the house and I made them sit at the foot of my bed and listen while I sort of like went through this whole thing. Um, so that was the first story I remember writing. I remember being very satisfied with it because Legos are great. And the first meal I remember being proud of, oh God, you're going to make me, okay. Just as a caveat, younger Alex was a very different, cringier, more arrogant version of the current, slightly more enlightened Alex. I want to, I want to preface the story with this. So, um, I set fire to a kitchen on accident. Um, I had left a pot of, um, beef lard boiling overnight. Um, and because of the cheapness of the pot that I had chosen and the amount of fire I had left under it overnight after I was the last one to leave, um, the fat on top of the uh, pot caught fire and then managed to burn through the bottom, which sent a wave of sort of fat riddled fire water rolling throughout the kitchens with any, which anybody will tell you uh, when it comes to Ansel systems is a bad sign. So all of the fire suppression foam went off in the kitchen and we had to close down for like two or three days. Uh, so everybody around the kitchen started calling me torch because they thought it was hilarious. And the first meal I came up with was a very cheap cut of flank steak marinated in lime chili and espresso. For some reason, mm. I could not, I could not begin to tell you the reasonings behind that because coffee is already acidic and I decided to just make it more acidic and also spicy. And I paired it with mashed potatoes and I think green beans. 
and it called it Torch's flank steak. And yes, my mom does still continue to bring it up. So that's not on the menu now. It's, you know, what's crazy. It's not, and I don't think it ever will be. <laughs> okay. All right. Um, we've talked kind of a little bit around it, um, but you're here to um, discuss the Woodkin and I'm going to swing it back over to you to give us your pitch of the Woodkin. The Woodkin is half a love letter to the Pacific Northwest wilds and anyone who has spent a night underneath the stars or in a tent. If you enjoy backpacking or hiking or being alone out in the wilderness, this book is for you and for me because we're the same. And it is also half a horror story about what it feels like to wake up alone in those woods. Um, what would you compare it to? And that doesn't have to be just literature. It can be movies since we, we kind of talked about the strangers. There's a, quite a few out there um, that are kind of wilderness-ish. All right. So dear listener, before uh, we hit record, <laughs> I was talking about the utter panic I felt about this one question because I don't know what the comps. Okay. All right. I'm going to do my best and I'm going to remember what my agent told me, which is that I know books and movies. Okay. It's, I'm going to say it's, it's a splash of the Hills have eyes. Um, which was that directed by Mike Flanagan? Have I put, did I have that? Do I have that? Um, maybe the so. newer version. I'm not sure about the, yeah. Original. Okay. One of the Hills have eyes that may or may not be directed by Mike Flanagan. And I'm going to say the twisted ones. Okay. Uh, which is, I think a recent novel that Taking I read. Fisher. Yes. That's the one. Yeah. Okay. You did it. I did it. And a little teenage mutant Ninja turtles, just because everything's <laughs> made better by a little bit of teenage mutant Ninja turtles. Um, and though we do classify this as a survival horror, I think that's, you know, that would be, um, that, that would be part of the pitch. There is a lot of trauma. Um, it kind of starts towards the beginning of the book with Josh's, um, processing of a recent betrayal. Um, but as the book progresses and, and his journey progresses, he starts to recall an, an older wound from his childhood. So can you talk about the decision to include these elements of trauma in your story? Absolutely. One of them was 100% intentional, and the other one took me entirely by surprise. I was reading, and it was on Reddit. It was a Am I the Asshole? Mm. You can bleep that if you'd like to. Um, Am I the Asshole thread on Reddit, which is basically people describe situations, and then the readers comment and say, yes, you are the asshole. No, you're not the asshole. It's a fascinating subreddit. If you haven't delved into the uh, Am I the Asshole subreddit, you should. It's a great afternoon. Usually they're the asshole. Usually they are the asshole. This case, um, actually, so the, the betrayal that Josh is facing is a betrayal from his uh, partner having to do with um, a, big, a big old lie, I'll say that. And the scene that came from that was the the main character josh reaches into a, a trash can and finds something that uh his partner has tried to hide from him and he, and he turns to his partner and says like what is this and his partner's uh first very first response is why don't you trust me and i thought that was such a fascinating way to start what i could only imagine was a horrible horrible argument because that opening note of why don't you trust me is it speaks so much to somebody's 
fear and insecurity. And I thought that was really fascinating. So the, the original seed of why Josh was, was going to the wilderness to do this hike was because of this horrible fight that happened because of this thing he found in the trash. That was intentional. I wanted that to happen because I thought it was, it was an interesting way to thread sort of why he's out there and, um, split his focus that way. The second trauma, which is the older trauma in Josh's life. I had zero intention of writing literally goose egg intention of writing. And I was, I was in the middle of a scene one, one day and it just, it just started. It just happened. He just started talking about it. And I was like, ah, cool. This could be cool or it, or it could be garbage that I'll have to edit out later. We'll see. And, um, in the first draft of the book, it was a little higgledy piggledy and sort of like some of it was here in this section. And then some of it was here in that section. But when Becky, my agent and I first started revising it, we kind of brought it into a more coherent flow to through the book. And it ended up being a really nice mirror to the trauma that he left for. And then it turned into the trauma that he came back from kind of thing. I think it was a conversation with Apple tree. Was that when we first mm-hmm. heard about it? Okay. Exactly. Okay. Um, so, uh, and I, I'm really curious about, about this question. Um, a lot of horror fiction is domestic. So we have our haunted houses, our human monsters, typically in urban settings. Um, what is the difference between terror in the wild and terror at home? Another great question. Wow. Very good. Um, I think terror in the wild could be broadly classified as fear of the unknown. Um, it's, you know, what's, what's in the shadows between the trees, what's watching you sleep. You know, it's easy to imagine many beasties long of tooth and claw in the darkness and the woods and the wilds, because that's not where we are supposed to be. And then horror at home is sort of the other side of the spectrum where it's everything we find a comfort turned against us. So, you know, you, you, the classic haunted house is like a house is a, is a paragon of comfort because it's someplace that should, you should feel comfort in. It should be cozy and all of your, all of your things. And it should keep you safe from the cold and, and all of these things. So a haunted house is like a house that is turned against you is a really fascinating concept because it's, it should be comfort and it's not. Um, so I like that the woodkin kind of splits and explores both of those things because it does talk about the monsters out in the woods and it does talk about the, the monsters at home and when, what that looks like a little bit. Uh, so this kind of came to mind as you were, you were kind of exploring the, the answer to this question um, and the comfort of being at home. At home, it's your space that's invaded. In the wilderness, you're invading Mother Nature, I guess. Yeah, for sure. Okay. It's also like, it's curious the, the, and this has been brought up a, a few times and I've, I've learned more about it as I've talked more about it, but um, my character goes into the wilderness sort of at a, at a whim. He's just had this fight. So he sort of throws himself into, into the wilderness um, and it's almost uh arrogant like it's confident to the point of arrogance because he doesn't really prepare himself suitably so the this idea of of the the horrors of the wild it's almost funny to me because i'm like well i mean yeah like what did you think was going to happen um 
my original version of this question mentioned uh, missing 411, but I wasn't sure if that was something you'd be familiar with. There's a lot of, uh, I guess, I'd say in the past 10 years, an exploration of of like just disappearances in the wild. Mm. Um, so as you were, as I was reading this, I was like, you know, disappearance as in they have no idea, they have no explanation for it. They found a pair of shoes and no evidence of anything else or um, they searched an area for months and then all of a sudden this missing person's backpack shows up there. So kind of like a little supernatural element. So mm-hmm. I was going into it as, you know, especially before we had a better sense of what the woodkin were, that's kind of what I was expecting to answer some of those questions. Went a different direction, but it, it kind of had me wondering if that was uh, at all your inspiration, but judging by the body language, that wasn't. Well, you know, it's funny when you bring up the woodkin because my, mm, let me rephrase. I find it so interesting what people consider to be the scary part of a story. For me, it's not the monster. It's never the monster. The scary part of the story is the ripples around the monster. How do we feel? What are we running from? What does it look like when we're running? Is it, you know, is it dark? Is it a corn maze? Is it a, is it a mountain pass under a full moon? Whenever the camera metaphorically or literally pans to the monster, there's that first burst of like, wow, that's cool. And then inevitably disappointment. So when I was writing this book that clearly was about monsters in the woods, I, for the longest time, just avoided writing about the monster because that's not, that's not the juice to me. So, you know, at a certain point in one of the revisions, revisions that I was doing before I had uh, Becky, my lovely agent, I was like, one of my, one of my critique partners at the time was like, you have to write about the, you have to write about the thing. Like this is a this is a scary story, but you never talk about the thing. So it was with great reluctance that I actually wrote about the Woodkin. And I think that hasn't resonated with a lot of people or whatever the opposite of hasn't resonated is. Um, there are people who have said, we wish there was more about the Woodkin and where they came from and what their deal is. But that's just not, that's not the juice to me. I, I, I tend to agree, especially with this, um, with your novel that, the moments of tension really were in the chase and the not knowing. Um, I felt like, of course, during our, the initial kind of pursuits, but then of course, in in a book like this, there's going to be escapes later on when you you kind of feel like maybe we have returned to that domestic setting and things are a little safer. Now there was another kind of chase element there that I felt like, like you were saying um, the, idea of being chased rather than what's chasing you. I, I would agree. That's more terrifying. Yeah. I, it's almost like if you're, if you're looking at it as a, as a POV, it's always scarier to be the runner. Like you're, you're whipping through the trees. You're trying desperately to stay one step ahead of whatever is breathing behind you. And you're trying to find this path. And, and I don't know, it's, it's always just been scarier to me to be the person running than whatever is chasing them. I think that's what signs did so well in that mm. it very rarely showed you the monster. And so, at, you know, people say that's the scariest movie they've ever seen. And the monsters on screen for at least the, the one that everyone, everyone remembers is the Brazilian birthday party video where the alien just kind of walks by for, you know, a, a fifth of a, you know, like half a second. Yeah. And, uh, that 
it's the the tension of not knowing. Um, so cool. Um, but the without spoiling any plot elements, the Woodkin are the force that Josh encounters and contends with throughout the story, even though we may not quite know what they are at the beginning. So what was your vision for the Woodkin? And was there any specific source of inspiration? Source of inspiration, yes. There's a very specific source. I was backpacking out uh, south of Mount Baker, which is a mountain here in the Pacific Northwest. And I was very far removed from the road and any trails. And uh, I was camped around a high subalpine lake. And I woke up in the middle of the night and I had to pee, as happens. And I rolled out of my sleeping bag and sort of like staggered outside my tent. And there was another person watching me. And it was probably the most scared I've ever been in my entire life. Um, I also scared the bejesus out of this person, which made me feel a little bit better. And we had like we had like a moment, a very human moment where we were like, are you OK? Are you OK? And, and it ended up being fine. But I brought that moment back with me as, as a another like core founding piece of this book is just like, what does that scenario look like where it's not nearly so amicable? So that started this whole question series of what is the woodkin? What do they look like? What do they want? As far as, as my vision for them, I think the most coherent it ever got was there's a, there's a small child in the woodkin um, that sort of starts this main character's interaction with them. And there's a, there's a scene where he sort of like reveals himself in the moonlight and half of his face is sort of like cut open in a ritualistic-esque scarring. And that was the clearest vision I had for the Woodkin as far as like what they look like. Beyond that, I really had to sift quite thoroughly to get nuggets of where they came from or what they want because as, as you and I have talked about, it's just it's just not that interesting to me. It's so interesting to, you know, this is uh, episode 11. So I've had a few authors on before you and just to mm -hmm. see the kind of the diversity of thought. Um, we have reached a halfway point. And so now I'm going to look at Alexander and see if he is willing to read this ad. And if not, okay, take it away, Alexander. Thank you so much for joining us for our uh, fireside chat dog-eared nightmares would like to thank its latest sponsor snacker you have a meal delivery service for dinner doordash or uber eats for lunch but what about the in-between times the average american spends 12 hours a day commuting to and from work red lights truck nuts the person with the out-of-state license plate who has no idea where they're going it's a lot and you shouldn't have to deal with it on an empty stomach. That's where Snacker comes in. Snacker will deliver a week's worth of snacks directly to your car's center console. These snacks are designed with you in mind. They're big on portability and light on finger dust. Feeling adventurous? Try our Fuego box, complete with wet wipes. Starting keto? Our chicken liver crisps are next level. With Snacker, peace of mind is always within arm's reach. I hope that starts a trend <laughs> of people doing that. Thank you. Of course. I'm going to set that as the expectation from now on. And considering who my next guest is, I'm anxious to see if she'll play ball. Ooh, who's your next guest? Uh, I'll tell you after. Okay. Fair enough. Fair enough. Okay. So I really did enjoy, there were several writer moments in here that um, I enjoyed and I may be, this may be sacrilegious, but I directly mark 
on books now. I actually love that. Because I'm like, where is this going to go? And I love it when I go to a used bookstore and I find a book that has been marked oh, to see what 100%, is meaningful. 100%. So I actually opened it up to one here that um, I have written down that I just kind of, maybe you can't recapture the headspace you were in, but just kind of mm -hmm. talk us through it. So <clears throat> the first one, I felt like I'd stepped into a house I didn't live in, spying through a keyhole at a love beyond my understanding. Mm. So stepping into a house I didn't belong in is a, is a really powerful thought for me because again, I find I have historically found a lot of comfort in my home and my space. I'm a, I'm a hermit sort of by nature. So I spend a lot of time at home. So stepping into a house I didn't belong in is always sort of talismanic in its, in its power because it's innately something that gives me sort of like the willies. Um, and looking at looking at love that this character didn't understand is also powerful because like so much of this book is wrapped around Josh's struggle with his relationship and with his with how he loves this person and how that love is is returned to him. Um, I can't remember where in the book that is. Um, let's see. So this would be, I believe, that, oh, so this is when Appletree is kind of uh, spinning his yarn, telling him about, so yeah, it's, um, and they may be using their um, alternative names here at this point. So I think it's when he gets a glimpse of the story that Appletree mm -hmm. told him about his lover and, and coming back from war. And I think he just felt like it was more intimate than he might have anticipated, you know, that random um, encounter with a stranger in the wild would be. Have you ever, and this is sort of like a human to human connection that you and I are about to have, whether you, and you can feel free to nope out of it if you'd like to, but have you ever had that moment where you're sitting at a fire, specifically by a fire, having like a really deep conversation with somebody? I don't know about the fire. I feel like okay. there are times when you random meeting, what, public transport, whatever, that you have a, a conversation about very, per like just, it feels like, you know, talking to a therapist for someone you mm -hmm. just met and then you never see them again. You've, you do have those moments in life. I love them because it feels like a, like a pact the two of you have signed on to for this brief, however, maybe like three stops on a train where mm -hmm. you just both, step into a safe space and throw out some secrets to just sort of like clean off the plate. I mm. think it's such an interesting facet of like how we do our weird human thing. And I've specifically had it happen at fires while camping, such as Josh Mallory and Apple tree, which is where the scene is coming from where they want, like they have stepped into this sort of like literal bubble of light to, to, talk a little bit and apple tree's story really like makes josh uncomfortable not because of apple tree telling it or because josh is is judging him for it but because it's showing truly truly like what a relationship could look like yeah and then i guess in the context of the reason he's on his journey as well to that so. absolutely awesome um, and this one is just 
I found it interesting considering your uh, <laughs> your trade, and it's more descriptive. But um, this is in reference to apple tree skin. It pulled away from the sharp lines of his sunken cheekbones like overboiled pasta. Listen, I I am a professional chef, and I have fucked up many a plate of pasta by leaving it in the in the pasta dunker for too long, and it has such a fascinating rubbery consistency that uh, while I was writing the scene, I was like, what is it? Well, I was my, like, my fingers were typing and I was thinking like, what does it look like? And the phrase overboiled pasta came out and I think I paused to make a face and then kept going. Well, I liked it. Um, if I hadn't known you were a chef, I might've like, oh, that's interesting. But then I was like, I, I bet, you know, if anybody knows, he knows. Yeah. Okay. And this one, you know, we've heard fear, adrenaline, described in a lot of ways and often often references metal. So I really just want to focus on a single word here, which is a little bit different. The adrenaline on the back of my tongue tasted like shiny pennies. Why shiny? Um, uh, mm, well, here's the thing is I'm not very good at this. And so <laughs> I just sort of threw that sentence out there and um, it's, I tell you what it is. It's evocative. Uh, what does it mean? I don't know. I guess it makes you think, cause we've heard the, you know, pennies in my mouth or, you know, sure. rusty nail. we've heard it done a lot. Mm -hmm. Um, not, I mean, I've, I've done it. That's no shade oh, yeah, on a, you. It's a really common, no, it's a common comparison. Um, but shiny, I think that's the first time I've, I've encountered shiny. And so it just, you know, reading over a phrase that you might traditionally not even, um, remember two pages later that one, you know, kind of jumped out at me. So, um, yeah, I, for, uh, I'd say a large portion of my audience is writers and mm -hmm. that's going to transition well into this next question. But, um, if you're not intrigued by the story, I hope you are at this point with all we've, we've kind of said about it. There are some awesome little nuggets of writing here that I, I truly, truly enjoyed. So Thank um, you. kudos to you. Um, as I just said, many of my listeners are horror writers, and you are a debut um, author, at least as far as novels go, and I'm guessing they are salivating at any advice you can give related to finding an agent or publishing a wide release title. Can you walk us through that process? How and what did you pitch? How close was that, the the pitch to the finished product? Oh, great question. Um Advice to, to, to sort of traditional publishing is tough because it kind of sounds, it, it always strikes me as somebody holding up a winning lottery ticket saying, sell everything you own and buy lottery tickets. You know, like um, I, I know that the concrete advice I can give as trite as it might sound, uh, don't be precious about your draft, whatever you're querying, if you're querying something, really, really try to look at it with the most cold, honest gaze you can, what works about it, what doesn't work about it. Have other people read it. If you haven't yet, get alpha readers or beta readers, get critique partners, have, ask people to shred your words over and over and over again, because you can always build them back stronger. But if you've got weak prose or something in your story doesn't work, or it's, sorry to say, kind of boring. I mean, it happens. I write, I have written boring books. My agent is in the process of fixing a book that I wrote that was boring in its first draft. It happens. Uh, but lying to yourself or pretending it's something it isn't is only going to hurt you in the long run. So, um, find 
people and ask them to shred your book and then read theirs in as a, as a trade and, and shred theirs or well, don't shred it. Don't be mean about it, but you have to learn what works and what doesn't in order to do it well. Because if you don't, if you can't start that, then you're never going to get anywhere. Um, as far as what I pitched versus the final draft, it's actually funny that you use the word pitch because I did uh, find my agent during a, a pitch wars event. Mm. So I had the woodkin in its, in its draft form and my critique partner, uh, the lovely Taylor Grota shout out. Um, she and I worked on our pitches. This is not hyperbole. We obsessed about our pitches for two full weeks before the event. We got together for multiple hours a week and it was three sentences. They're three tweets. They're not long. And we wrote them over and over and over again. And we would look at each word and be like, is that the sharpest word possible for what we're trying to, to give anyway? So I pitched it by, I was talking about the missing persons, uh, missing hiker posters in the, in the fluttering window, fluttering in the window. I remember that. And there was another one about somebody screaming in the dark. That was also quite good. And, um, Becky, my lovely agent liked the, like the tweet. And I sent her the book and she sent me a revise and resubmit, which was heartbreaking at the time because I thought that she would just accept it, but that isn't how it worked for me. Uh, so I revised it and then, uh, then she, she was gracious enough to sign me. That's awesome. Um, so pitch wars can actually lead to a hardcover release. It can, uh, I think pitch pitch wars specifically like pitmat is no more mm -hmm. i think the the volunteer organization disbanded it but they have other pitch events okay there's pit socials uh pit dark is that still going I... pit dark is still one there's rev pit i want to say there's okay. um div pit which is for diverse uh, yes. uh writers so there are pitch events that can for sure help um so that's uh hopeful for me and my listeners um, are you a plotter or a pantser? Ooh, great question. And poignant to this book specifically, because I, I start as a plotter. I start with act one, act two, act three, act four. Here's what happens. And then inevitably by like act 1.65, my plot uh, as written is completely garbage and none of it is relevant anymore. And I have to redo it. Uh, with this book specifically, I rewrote the ending of the Woodkin seven times. So Fully start, uh, I, can't, I can't ask this too spoiler. I was going to say starting from what point, cause I'm trying to envision like at what point would it have become different? Okay. I can tell you that about ha about mm, the escape. Okay. So our, about, about the escape is where the, okay. what I consider to be like where the end of that book starts. Okay. So it's essentially the last 15,000 words, 15 and 20,000 words. I rewrote it seven times because I was not happy with it. The first iteration, the first ending of that book was straight up boring. 
very, it was straight up boring. It was disappointing and lame and bad. And the second one was only marginally better. I rewrote it seven times. And my wife likes to tell a story about a morning where she came out of the bedroom and I was squatted on the floor of our living room with index cards spread out in like a crazy man's board in front of me on the floor. And I was shuffling chapters of like hypothetical endings that I had written in pencil to sort of see like in my mind's eye where they went. Uh, um, and eventually I ended up with the ending that I have now, which I quite like. Um, but even that actually got changed um, with editorial revisions because the ending that I had with Becky when we went out on sub was similar, but it had a very different tone, which I ended up mm. actually, that was the only honest to God argument I got into with my editor. Mm. So hybrid kind of sounds like. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. I start as a, I start as a plotter and then I just sort of like go where the story takes me. And then I try to structure from there. Okay. So we're on to, Oh no, I'm sorry. What inspires you and how do you capture it when you're not in front of a keyboard? Mm, I text my critique partner at all hours of the day, random sentences that uh, they uh, they are actually nice enough to snapshot them and send them back to me as pictures. So they have them on my camera roll. Uh, that's how I, because, um, you know, inspiration strikes in the weirdest moments. Like you're, you're walking off a bus and suddenly you're like, oh, cool idea. Um, what inspires me? Lots of things. Inspiration. I mean, inspiration comes to humans in, in any number of ways. I mean... I can get you, we're all, we, we get inspired by an interaction we have with somebody that leaves an impression. We can get inspired by a weird building or a bird sitting weird on a bench, you know, like that's the great thing about art and humans is just inspiration comes from anywhere. Um, I don't have it to show you, but, um, for productivity's sake, you, you talked about like sending, um, sentences to your critique partner. Mm -hmm. I've started on my drive to work on my commute, which is usually 30 to 45 minutes up to two hours, depending on um, Oof. bad stuff that might've happened on the road. Now I bring a tape recorder. And so I get a lot of my writing done in the car. I'll just transcribe it when I get a moment. It's it's helpful to even just vocalize and speak it out loud. So um, absolutely. Now um, it was a little false start there, um, now we're onto the rapid fire and by rapid fire doesn't mean you have to answer quickly. Um, just that these questions are a little truncated. So, um, cooking and writing one feels external. One feels more internal. Um, is that true for you? And is there any overlap? Mm. Writing is to me, losing myself. The best writing I've ever done is when I sink fully below the surface of the words and I just exist in whatever scene I'm building. It's almost like they're building themselves around me in like little columns of fog. It's very exhilarating. It's very thrilling when it's going well. Cooking is a mechanical process of controlling variables. I have been cooking for so long Food doesn't surprise me. If something burns, I don't go, oh, wow, why did that happen? I know why it burns. If something doesn't taste right, I know how to fix it. So cooking is a series of variables that you're constantly sliding on a scale. They are actually not very similar anymore in, in my head. My knowledge of cooking is um, pretty much relegated to 
Food Network and mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and stuff like that. And I, f- I forget exactly what program it might have been. Um, is it one of the Alton Brown one of one of his oh, shows? Yeah. Yep. Where yep, he, yep. He talked about like the true measure of any good chef is scrambled eggs. Yep. Hundred so percent. Can you walk us through how to prepare perfect scrambled eggs? Perfect? Probably not. Let me tell you how I scramble eggs. And this will we'll, we'll, we'll codify this and say how I scramble eggs at work because when I scramble eggs at home, it is a it's a very different process. So, uh, crack your eggs into a bowl. First of all, have your have your pan hot, medium heat, a little bit of fat in there. I prefer butter. You can do olive oil or canola if that's your vibe. Uh, crack your eggs into a separate bowl. Make sure there's no shell in there, please and thank you. Give it a light stir. There's no reason to listen, listen, listen. If I wanted fully homogenous eggs, I would buy liquid eggs. Give it a light stir. You're not trying to turn it into blended eggs. Give it a quick whisk, throw, put it in your pan, leave it alone. Too, so many people. All right. I guess it, it does boil down to preference. I'm all over the place. Sorry. You asked me about food. It depends on preference. I prefer a larger curd in my eggs. Some people prefer smaller curds, kind of like cottage cheese texture style. I like big uh, chunks of egg. So I leave it and I let it start to cook around the edges and sort of bubble up in the middle. And then I'll start scrambling with a rubber spatula, moving it around my nonstick pan. Um, when it's about half cooked, I'll add cheese. If I'm adding cheese, typically a, sh- a shredded cheddar, a sharp white or a nice, uh, robust yellow wouldn't come amiss. Um, and then I'll flip it once and I will always, always pull it before it is done. If you are cooking your eggs and they look cooked over the fire, by the time you put them on the plate, they will be rubber. Carry over cooking. It's a thing. Look it up. I learned so much in the last <laughs> minute. Can you dispel a rumor? Do, does adding milk make eggs fluffier? No. Okay. It makes Sorry. it makes eggs. No, it's it's fine. It makes <laughs> eggs fattier, which a lot of people mistake as fluffy. But fluffy eggs is nothing more than um, they're eggs. Like, why are your why do you want eggs to be fluffy? I don't understand. Maybe it's because I'm I'm also a writer, so I have the luxury of like relying on something other than my cooking. But I can't obsess about fluffy eggs. I just can't. Um. Cooking is, uh, well, I know you're executive chef, so not quite the same, but it is a, I'm sure at that level, a drain on your time. (laughs) Yeah. So how do you maximize your writing time? I have what has been called by my wife, an obsessive writing schedule when I am drafting. I, so I, my schedule varies kind of wildly because some days I'm closing with my crew for a Saturday night service. So I'm in around noon and I'm out around uh, midnight, 1am. Other times I'm opening with my prep team. If we've got a big uh, menu change coming up or specials that I want to have eyes on. So I'm in at 5am and I'm out at 5pm. So my schedule sort of like really runs the gamut. So every day, irregardless of what my end time is, I wake up at 430 in the morning. From 4.30 to 5.15, I crank out about a thousand words. And that time is sitting in front of my computer, typing literally as fast as I can. There is no, there's no editing going on in the morning writing session. There's no stopping to contemplate what best fits a scene. There's no, is this really the right word choice? It's straight up a sprint to a thousand words. Then I go to work. I do that thing. I feel like 
comparing my writing life to my uh, working life is like my writing life is the peaceful piano playlist on Spotify and a cup of fresh coffee and a gentle rain outside the window. And my work life is like alarms sounding and people screaming and slamming pots with wooden spoons. So when that part ends, I come home at the end of the day, uh, I give my lovely, very patient wife a kiss and I sit down and I write another thousand words to 1.5 thousand. Sometimes if I'm, if I'm feeling, um, aggressive with, with whatever I'm drafting, I will write another 1.5 thousand words. Similarly, try to do it very fast and then, um, cap it for the day, hang out with my wife. So about two to two and a half thousand a day. That's, uh, every weekday weekends or my weekends are slightly different. I'll still wake up early. I'll do 2k in the morning and then I'll do another thousand at the end of the day. So I'll get another three on the weekends. And it's all mostly unedited. It's mostly raw draft. And then I, when the book is done, I will cap it and essentially forget about it for the timeline. It's supposed to be six months, but these days it's more like a year and a half just because while something is capped and, and, and aging, I'll edit something else. And because I have an agent and I'm on sub, it's a much more involved process than me just reading it and making you know, edits, I, I go back and forth with my agent, Becky and my critique partner, Taylor. So it's a little bit more involved. So by the time I go back to that draft that I wrote at a breakneck pace at 4.30 in the morning before I went to work to make consomme all day or whatever, um, it's basically a stranger's book, which allows me to be wicked objective with uh, what's good, what's bad, and what needs to be cut. So to the writer listeners, if you are producing less than two and a half thousand words a day, you are not an executive chef. <laughs> I listen, there are so many better jobs to have as a writer than a chef. Like being a chef is so antithetical to writing full time. So we've talked about it a little bit. You said um, Becky has uh, another book of yours that she mm -hmm. is shaping. I think I actually saw her tweet about that uh, a couple days ago. So that may answer this question, but if you want to tell us what you can, what's next for Alexander? Ooh, uh, I am going out on sub with a YA horror about, um, it's about a teenager who finds a door in the woods. Um, so it's sort of portal fantasy, horror, YA, it takes place in the Olympic Peninsula here in the Pacific Northwest, which is, I'm convinced, a magical place. If you've never been to the Olympic Peninsula in Washington State, go, because it's incredible. But um, yeah, it's 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 a weird one. It's a cool one, but it's weird. Does it have a title? Or are we allowed to know that yet? Mm, yeah, I'll tell you. No, I won't. It's too, okay. it's too cool. It's too cool. I can't quite give it. Also, I think it might be bad luck to talk about a title before it goes out on sub. Okay. Um, anything else you can talk to us about? Any other releases or? No, I think literary wise, that's it. I got the Woodkin and then I got my next book and I am just doing the work. And you would be um, eligible for, I don't know if you're allowed to talk about it, but I am because I'm not you. <laughs> the consideration for first novel for the Bram Stokers, if people read it and enjoy it and they are voting members, 
So um, closing question, what is your dog-eared book, literal or figuratively? What is the book you have come back to for back to more than any other and why? All right. Dear listener, thank you so much for hanging out with us for dog-eared nightmares because the show is amazing and I'm so glad that you stuck with me. I promise on my mom that I am not nearly as pretentious as this answer is about to make me out to be. You've heard me talk about eggs. You've heard me talk about embarrassing things in my life. So please rest assured that I am not as douchey as I'm about to sound. But it is The Unabridged Count of Monte Cristo by Alexandre Dumas because that book beats ass cheeks. It's so good. It's great. Listen, listen, listen. It is a 1,262-page essay on exactly how money will solve your problems. Page by page, point by point, it is about a sailor who gets rich and goes after vengeance and gets it, and it's great. I think that's the first classic literature um, entry into the uh, favorite dog-eared book. So thank you. We're breaking a lot of ground in this interview, I feel like. Yeah, we're talking about eggs. (laughs) Eggs in the Count of Monte Cristo. (laughs) A perfect way um, to end the show. So thank you, uh, Alexander. I I truly did enjoy the book. Um, Thank you to Becky for sending it to me. And um, yeah, maybe we can chat about the unnamed YA horror on another edition of Dog-Eared Nightmares. I'd be stoked on it. Thank you again to Alexander James. I started the interview by forgetting to hit the record button and edited it by accidentally hanging up on him. So uh, thank you for your patience with that. And it was a true pleasure to interview you. Now, pivoting slightly, I'm here with my daughter, MJ, to do an edition of MJ's Corner. And today we are going to talk about the graphic novel, Hellphone. So MJ, what is this? book about um so hellphone is about these two girls named sissy and lola who are best friends next door neighbors and now murder solvers so when sissy picks up a lost flip phone and follows the instruction there's dogs barking i'm gonna leave the microphone and, and mj's gonna keep talking when Sissy finds a lost flip phone and follows the instructions from the stranger on the other line, she and Lola are flung into an investigation of grisly crime. With each new phone call, the girls are are dug deeper into a conspiracy that threatens their lives and possibly their friendship. But with no way to escape the dreaded calls, their only way out is to unravel their mystery. So this was one of the books that I think led you to um, the discovery that you enjoy mysteries. Yes, I would say so as well. And it's a quick read. Um, it's a graphic novel, but even for a graphic novel, it's it's relatively short. What I think you read this in under 30 minutes? Uh, yes. Okay, so what would you compare this book to? Either another book or maybe something out there in like movie television shows something like that 
I would compare this to Scream because of the phone that they use and who calls and they're not sure yet but they find out in the end so it's a kind of a a thriller mystery a little bit of horror vibe yeah it's kind of also like knives out because you have to like dig your way and find out in the end kind of like the encyclopedia browns books that are that were popular in the 90s they were popular well before that as well um so final question what age range is this book appropriate for i mean it has a swear word in the title i'd say at least eight and older because there are a couple gory scenes that show dead bodies so once again that was hellphone and that is by benji nate thank you mj